Uh, hi, Julia. Thanks so much for speaking with us today. Um, I think it's fair to say that in your career, you've worn many different hats. So I thought we could just start with a quick introduction um, to your career and also the work that you do through your consultancy. Sure. Well, thank you very much. First of all, I'm delighted to be uh, on the show. Thank you for asking me. And I'm really looking forward to the conference as well. Uh, so I have quite a sort of mashed up career. I, uh, I've been working in the field of financial services now for 30 years in different guises. I started first 10 years in PR consulting where my biggest clients were uh, some of the biggest brands in finance, particularly in the world of banking and finance and the institutional side more than the retail side. Uh, I uh, Those 10 years have included then uh, going through the dot-com boom at the end of the 90s, where I worked with a lot of entrepreneurs, and I've also worked with global institutions, so I sat on the executive committee of the technology business of the New York Stock Exchange, so I've done the intergalactic job as well. Um, 12 years ago, I decided to uh, take a bit of a break, partly because I was exhausted from traveling. Uh, I did two things. Uh, one was I decided to do something I've always wanted to do. I went off to be a stand-up comedian. Uh, having never done stand-up before, I booked a show at the Edinburgh Fringe, and I took a show to Edinburgh, uh, and then decided that that probably wasn't going to pay the mortgage. Uh, so I came back and weirdly was then approached uh, by a startup business. Uh, this is uh, just before Lehman's collapsed as well, which is interesting timing. Um, and they basically said, look, would you help us with, with our business? And so that's where my business began. So then from that, I then became an entrepreneur, set up my own business, and that's 12 years ago. And what we focus on is business development, marketing and communications in the world of financial services and technology, also known as fintech, and working with organizations from the smallest early stage businesses right the way through to global institutions. So we'll move on to the, the fintech discussion a little bit later mm -hmm. on in the podcast. But um, as you've just described there, lots of very different um, things going on in your career. Um, so how do you approach new challenges and learning new skills? Well, I'm a big fan of lifelong learning and I'm a really big fan of try something that makes you utterly terrified, which is how I got into doing stand-up comedy yeah. in a way. Um, so, I mean, I suppose the one of the things that I've learned, I've been doing quite a bit of reflecting over the last two or three years and one of the few things I've learned, one of them is I'm, I'm very happy uh, working on the move. So I travel a lot, I juggle a lot, I do, I'm an auctioneer, I'm a stand-up comedian, I do lots of things around and about the day job and I've got a podcast and all sorts of things. So I'm very happy, I've learned to, 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 to work and also to learn on the move as well. Um, and the other thing is that I've learned to become comfortable with imperfection. So starting with everything is going, well, I kind of know what I what I need to know. I have no idea how I'm going to get there. So I'll go and talk to some people who do. Uh, so I, you know, extending a network of people uh, has been very important to me. And of course, it's a very weird network when you begin to think about all the people that I've got to know. So invariably, whatever you can do, you'll probably know somebody who can help you uh, get the answer. Mm -hmm. So therefore, bring people in, uh, recognize that other people can help you. And, um, and just constantly... Uh, look for how you can do things differently. Uh, there's no point following the pack. Always try things to try things that are new, things that are terrifying, and things that are different. And there's nothing more terrifying than standing up on a stage and trying to tell people jokes for well, the first time, is there? <laughs> well, I do. Speaking from personal experience, <laughs> someone you, who's tried it a few times that? Okay, and, yeah. and gave up yeah. quite early on well, after some 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 daunting experiences. But there's an interesting thing that a lot of stand-up comedians talk about, which is the constant feedback 
that you get from being on a stage. Is that something that's helped you as well, do you think, in the rest of your career? <laughs> you know, in the world of technology, we talk about uh, agile processes. And agile is all about you build something, you try and break it uh, as quickly as you can with diversity around it, actually. Fascinating. Uh, you have to have different minds and different experiences. You go around a central problem, you try and break it as quickly as possible. So therefore, you can fix it. It's called fail fast. And you cannot fail faster <laughs> than no. in stand-up comedy because you like you know what tumbleweed sounds like so it's you know it's really good because actually it makes you do a number of things one of them is it makes you think uh, obviously about your material and how you deliver your material it helps you think about how you come across as a speaker and, and in fact weirdly now uh, I, well partly from what I've learned from that but I, I've also been asked a lot you know whether I give coaching in stand-up skills and, and I don't have time but we've just launched a program where we're working with an award-winning stand-up comedian teaching people confidence skills because we're all, we want to see greater diversity on stages. But half the thing is, have you got the confidence to step up? Mm -hmm. so, so we're bringing some of those comedy skills into building, uh, building confidence. But then also the other thing is that it makes you very aware of what's going on around you. You have to be utterly present. And that makes you, I believe, uh, a sharper businesswoman. I think it makes you better in when it comes to uh, strategy and meetings, but also negotiation. And it makes you deeply, deeply aware of it's not about you, it's about your audience. Mm. So you have to slightly suspend yourself and constantly be looking out and just going, is this landing? Is this working? And I've never had a great deal of patience for comedians who come off stage and say, oh, it wasn't my kind of crowd. Yeah. It's more then I don't think you worked hard enough. I don't think you had enough empathy for your audience about what they needed, nor indeed enough variety in your material so you can really take them with you. Mm. Um, but of course, you know, the material doesn't always work for everybody, but it, actually if you can engage people in your storytelling, they'll stay with you. Mm. And storytelling, you touched on it earlier as well. Uh, you've got your own podcast as well. So could you just give us a brief introduction to that and some of the topics that you cover? Yeah, with pleasure. It's called uh, Diverse City Podcast. So, uh, diversity with a C. Diverse City Podcast. And it's all about uh, inclusion, equality and diversity in financial services. So we're basically uh, doing... Uh, well, our editorial intention is very clear. Uh, it's about shining a light on really good uh, practice, other uh, you know, initiatives that are working well, because I think the conversation about diversity can take quite a negative turn. So I want to be very positive. We want to really focus on where we need to um, change things. So really sort of crystal clear, laser-like on areas that require improvement and then offer lots of practical ideas uh, to drive change and inspire change. And I don't have the answers. So on each show, we bring in two guests. So we get a diversity of opinion. And uh, yeah, we have the most fascinating conversations with some of the biggest leaders, not only in diversity and inclusion, but also uh, in leadership positions. Yeah. And what are some of the, the, the lessons that you've learned from those podcasts? So are there any kind of common traits uh, in businesses that are addressing diversity well? Yeah, it's fascinating because I, this is now series four. So I've interviewed probably about 80 uh, leading lights. And I think for me right now where we are, if we think about where we've come from, uh, there are a number of things I'm very optimistic about. I'm really optimistic about the fact that I'm now being asked to give keynote speeches around the world to mostly uh, traditionally... <laughs> how do I put this, traditionally dark suited pale men um, and to talk about diversity and inclusion because they realise that it matters which is really, really positive. 
Um, the things that really stick out for me at the moment, one is those uh, diversity and inclusion programs that are 100% aligned with the commercial ambition and the commercial imperative of any organization are destined to be successful. This is not a like to have. This is not about having ticks and boxes. This is all about we have to, um, every organization is trying to gain a competitive edge. It is trying to bring products and services to market faster. It is trying to return performance to shareholders, investors, and to customers, and, and always get a step ahead. And that's where diversity plays a role. And there's so much data that will support that. And there are organizations that embrace that really well and understand the commercial opportunity, and they're the ones that do very well. Mm. So I, I wanted to ask you about um, something that we'll be covering uh, at the conference, actually, in relation to the theme, which is humanity and technology. So in recruitment, um, we're finding that a lot of businesses are using AI machine learning as a way of trying to diversify their talent pool. But in some cases, it's actually exacerbating existing exclusivity in their talent pools. So how do we make sure that technology helps with bias rather than amplify it? Well, I think there are a number of elements to this. One of them is recognizing exactly what's going on. And I think we have to recognize that there are some recruitment firms that are naturally better than others. And there are some who are simply scraping profiles. And some of them are, you know, really genuinely looking for new ways in which to, to find candidates that nobody else can find. And that's what recruitment firms are challenged to do. And I think to be deeply, deeply mindful of the results, you know, and to be very mindful that if you are not getting the results you think you are, then there is an inherent bias somewhere on the way. Whether that is a human bias, conscious or unconscious, or whether that is a technology bias. And the truth of the matter is, if the data sets are not perfect, that you, you start on a skewed, uh, misaligned starting point, which therefore needs some time and attention to rectify. So if everybody's reaching for AI to be the great kind of panacea for all of this. To be the magic bullet. Then, then you need to think again, actually, in many ways. You need to go right the way back to going, upon what data is this technology being applied? And are we comfortable and confident that it is doing what it should? And there was one of the topics that I heard you cover on, on, on your podcast that, for me, I've only ever heard the term being used um, in an academic sense, that's intersectionality. So we speak to a lot of business leaders who talk about diversity and inclusion, but that's not a word that I've ever heard any of them really use. So let's define it. What is it? What is it? <laughs> yes. And then um, how can we? How can leaders use that concept rather than it just being the preserve of academia? So when we talk about intersectionality, this is something that, that's come up a number of times and I, I'm always on high alert for if somebody mentions it two or three times it's worth paying attention to and, and also bearing in mind our guests aren't just in the UK I mean I do live events and live recordings at all sorts of conferences around the world and I've heard this come up you know a number of times and it starts with the premise that siloism is the enemy of inclusivity so in an appetite to drive change there are some amazing networks that have been set up within organizations, whether LGBT networks or gender networks or disability networks or um, ethnic minority and ethnic heritage networks. They're all wonderful. However, when they work in isolation and when they don't let the outside world in, then that can create some issues. So I get deeply frustrated with women's networks who, who look at it through a solely uh, women-only lens 
you have to let men in. I mean, you absolutely have to. It has to be open for everyone. And it's about finding ways in which you can get fine, finding ways in which you can bring in allies and champions. The real magic happens, as has been put to me on more than one occasion, is that when you begin to get those networks to intertwine and intersect and to learn from each other's best practices, And to recognize that actually we should be aligning in some areas, not always all of them. That is when you can really accelerate the pace of change. Because there are some quite deep-seated concerns that around the gender debate, we are at risk of ending up with, yes, senior women in senior positions, as indeed we really, really want that to happen. But are they just going to be white women of privilege? Mm. And uh, that therefore uh, alienates a a wide range of potential talent for today and tomorrow that just doesn't even get a look in. So we have to be very, very mindful. And that's, that's an, I'm always looking for the accelerating factors. And this has been put to me. And and this is one that I'm playing out to other people and going, well, what do you think? What do you think? So it is about the intersectionality that will accelerate change. At the Future Talent Conference, you'll be speaking about the march of fintech into our organizations. So how is fintech changing the way people work outside of financial services and indeed within it as well? Well, as, as a, uh, a great lover of fintech innovation, I'm delighted that it affects everybody because I, the way you pay for anything and everything, you know, we're now contactless payments, mm. faster payments technology. We want apps, we want it now. It's, it's very digitally enabled. So actually everybody is touching fintech in some way, shape or form. What's interesting when you look at organizations that are not financial institutions and I'll be talking a bit about this is um, you know the, the the finance divisions and how corporate payments and how corporate treasury uh, is being enabled through technology is very fascinating because if you want to be driving international trade you need to be make sure that you're doing that as as efficiently and as effectively as possible but it's also creeping into other areas thinking around for example payroll and sort of how payroll is being then distributed and paid for and the mechanisms around that and how do those different functions intersect. Plus also, we're beginning to see that the um, the opportunities are opening up when you bring other dynamics in, such as loyalty schemes, such as pensions investments, such as, uh, and I'm very excited by this actually, because we are really thinking about how, you know, what employees need from their organisations and financial education. Mm. So it's not just simply about, you know, here's your money for the month and we're going to put some of that aside for your pension. It's actually how do you spend your money? And you don't have to share that data with your organization, but actually there are certain skills and uh, educational opportunities that can be driven through the fintech mm. initiatives that are enabling some of the, some of the uh, distribution of money. So HR's role in this is essentially to kind of almost add another layer of, of, of care into the process of, of being at work. It really does matter because according to the Mental Health Foundation, one in eight days of sick leave is attributed to mental health. Mm. And financial concerns, I believe, I don't have the data for it at the moment, but I'm going to be looking into it, has a role to play in terms of how people come to work, how they show up to work, how they perform at work, and financial debt... As anybody's been in debt, I mean, I was in debt in my 20s. I know how that feels. And it can be incredibly uh, concerning, alarming, and actually distracting, ultimately. Mm. So, yes, exactly. We talk a lot about, uh, you know, 
physical fitness and we talk about kind of you know how how you are actually in the workplace and are we are we helping people become better and healthier financial health is a really key piece of that mm. and so a through line that we found in, in in this podcast series is that you need to put the talent over the technology now what you've been speaking about there is how you can use technology to actually help your talent from a fintech and also from like a health tech perspective so how can business leaders make sure that they they do these things and how do they make sure that they're not using technology in a way that actually makes people lives at work worse so it's a really good question because when i set up my business 12 years ago uh, i decided to create an entirely virtual business model because i knew that technology was a great enabler and uh, people said I was mad. You have to have an office. People must turn up. You know, you need to see them walk through the door in the morning and you must see them leave at the end of the day. And I thought this was nonsense because I wanted to create a, a different model. And it's no coincidence, about 80% of my team are working mothers. So they can work any time, day or night. It, it really doesn't bother me, provided the work is, is a great quality and it's, it's delivered within the time that is expected of them uh, by, by us and also by the clients. But what's interesting, because with everything that I'm juggling, is that there is a time when you have to be switched on and there's a time when you have to be completely switched off as well. And you can, that's a problem with technology, it can drag you into being always on. Now, we were just talking about mental health, and I think it is one of the major considerations that organizations need to educate their workforces about, which is expectations of when to be on and when to be switched off. And also personal empowerment about the role that technology can have both positively and negatively negatively in terms of its impact on your mental health and your mental state and how you turn up and function as a human being but also on the other side about how you can use technology to help you prioritize some of that and how you can manage your life much more effectively as well julia thanks so much for your time today it's been a really interesting conversation we look forward to seeing you at the conference pleasure look forward to seeing you then thanks <laughs>